0: Hello, here are the notes for the, uh, for week one in the module Contracts with Nature, and uh, in this first week we will be reading the first part of Michel Serres' book The Natural Contract, the, uh, the first part entitled War Peace. Before beginning I'd like to say a few words about what I'm trying to do with these notes and, and how, I hope, you might find them useful. As you'll see, uh, especially in the first few weeks, the notes are above all, in effect, guides to reading, really, uh, in the sense that they follow the text and pick out a few key points and ideas as they come along. Sometimes I'll uh, take a step back to offer a, a wider perspective on what's happening, but for the most part, they stay quite close to the material. At, uh, at some points, I might almost summarise a section of text and while at others then try to expand what we can see on the page to bring out what what seemed to me to be the important steps taken and uh, and the questions circulating. Now, Michel Serre is not a systematic thinker in the usual sense. He doesn't start with well-defined first principles and then develop an argument towards a conclusion. But there are many characteristic features of his thinking, and they tend to involve the way uh, the way we are led from one point to another. so in a sense a bit like you know, following an argument, but also not like uh, following. An argument what we find is that we are often led from one point to another and then perhaps back to the first as different perspectives build and are linked to and often then modified by one another chris watkin explains this very well very helpfully i think in chapter one of his book me shall Say, figures of thought here in this module it means that we can't expect to get to the bottom of a given issue in just one week or one piece of reading before then moving on to the next thing. Instead, we'll have to be patient, content to get what we can from the work we're reading at any time, but also confident that our reading and our understanding will become richer as we go along. So on to the first section, war, peace. We begin with then uh, the book, The Natural Contract by Michel Serre and with this first section, War, Peace. In fact, most of the chapter, I'll call it a chapter, although it's not identified as such in the book. Most of this chapter is concerned with violence and war. But it ends with a brief reflection on peace and it would it would not be unfair to say that peace is its true theme, insofar as it is for the sake of peace that Sayre turns his attention, first of all, to violence and war. Moreover, in many of Sayre's works, violence occurs uh, as a break with an initial equilibrium, from which then order emerges, for example, in the form of history, as we see uh, in his book Rome. So violence is indeed an important theme and part of the, uh, uh, the way in which order is inaugurated. So we can't do without it altogether. The natural contract addresses the relation that human life has to the non-human world. It identifies the growing environmental and climatic crises and proposes a solution in the form of a contract that we must strike with nature. Often this is reduced to Sayre's suggestion that rights and democratic representation be extended to the natural world. But while this idea is important, very important, I believe, it by no means captures everything that is going on in this book. In addition, we find here a rich reflection on many themes, including knowledge, reason, and science, and the conception of law that runs through them all. At the heart of much of this sits the idea of contract that we're going to explore through this book, and then also through readings from other texts by Michel Serre, primarily both the both of physics and the incandescent. When we read the title of this first chapter, War, Peace, it's tempting to assume that the role of the contract is to deliver us from one to the other. We are at war. We enter into a contract. We're at peace. But as we'll see, it's not that straightforward. And we'll come back to this. Sam presents us with the painting by Goya of two men fighting in quicksand or a swamp. They exchange blows with sticks, oblivious to the fact that they are both sinking lower and, so we imagine, will soon perish together. It's a scene to which the book, says, book, The Natural Contract, is linked from beginning to end. And its message is that we are so consumed with our relations to one another, with the human world as such, that we neglect the world of things around us beneath our feet and above our heads. The climate, the weather, the meteora, as the ancients had it, the phenomena that lie between heavens and earth. The scene from Homer's Iliad, to which Ser refers in the next passage, illustrates a different point. Whereas in Goya's painting, the swamp waited passively to swallow up the fighters. Here the waters of the river rise up and threaten to sweep away Achilles. But what is the cause of this? Is it a springtime flood or the consequence of Achilles throwing so many of his slaughtered enemies into the river? What makes the river act this way? As we'll see, it's important for Sayre that we are aware of nature responding to our violence, the violence we unleash against each other and the consequent violence we do to the world around us as well. The section ends with Sayre warning us that, in his words, what was once local, this river, that swamp, is now global, planet Earth. Again the local and the global are recurrent themes for Sayre in this book and indeed in others. We'll come back to how he understands these terms but the point here is that the earth as such is now reacting against us. Later in the module we'll look at the conception of agency this implies. Although Sayre doesn't appear to explore the question of non-human agency in any detail It's present throughout his work in the centrality of communication. If all things not only receive and store information, but transmit it, as he believed, this involves at least a minimal or general sense of agency. The emergence of deliberation and purposiveness may then be a variation on this form of exchange. To say that the non-human world reacts in response to human violence assumes that a relation exists between the two parties. If this is true, then a contract must be possible. In fact, that relation may already be a contract of some kind that can be cultivated. One way to think about what Sarah is doing in this book is Uh, that he's asking what form this relation that is somehow already there can take well if so why then does he touch on so many topics science law religion history culture and so on does he not know where to look is he being too eclectic vague even how can he hope to say anything important and serious if he doesn't stick to one thing From the very beginning of his work, Sayre developed a way of thinking that identifies invariant characteristics that recur across multiple disciplines without ever being repeated exactly. Rather than an ideal that is the same wherever it occurs, there are series of variations. By moving from science to law to religion to history and so on, Sayre is trying to decipher the pattern that without being identically the same is somehow common to them all. He's trying to stitch our world back together. Moving on to the section climate here. Sir offers two interpretations of what we might say are unseasonal spells of high pressure in weather systems over Europe and America in 1988 and 1989. Excuse me. Either they could be explained by natural variations or they were the result of the growing levels of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere and the feedback loops between the sun, the earth and the atmosphere. Assuming that the second option is at least plausible, he then writes, Global history enters nature, global nature enters history. Very portentous uh, statement. The key term here is um, global. It indicates that we're dealing with open systems and that the process is uncontainable because each partner in the relation is uncontainable. And therefore beyond full determination or control. To be sure, the river in the Iliad was fed by its own sources in the mountains and flowed out to the sea, and in this sense it was open and unbounded, but it was still tractable in some way. Heap in the dead and it will flood, remove them and the danger will be averted. Similarly, An unknown history has brought Goya's two fighters to blows, and therefore there is at least some hope that a settlement can be found between them. In each case, the object, the river, and the subject, the fighter, can be bounded, determined, treated as a unity in some way that enters into relations with other objects or subjects. Action can be taken appeals made. But when everything is connected, actions have unpredictable consequences, especially when, as complexity theory has taught us, feedback loops can translate small causes to grander scales. We therefore have a problem. When nature is global, how and where does one act? This is, re- <clears throat> Excuse me. this is reflected in what Sayre says about science here, that it contributes to uncertainty. At first glance, this seems the wrong way around. Shouldn't science give us certainty? Well, in fact, it never really has. By virtue of its dependence on empirical evidence and inductive generalisation, that is an inference from limited evidence to a general law which is then taken to apply to all cases. But increasingly, and very much in the case of uh, climate science, scientists do not derive laws and then use them to make predictive judgments. They devise complex models that are run through computers to produce simulations. This is a form of algorithmic reason that we'll see, say, refer to elsewhere later in the module, but it can help us to know how, when, and where, sorry, can it, my question is, can it help us to know how, when, and where to act? Implicit in asking this is a a further question regarding the relation between the sciences and ethical or political action. And for Sayre, one way to think about this is through the concept of law that features in both the sciences and juridical practice, including the kind of legislation that has been interpreted as the proper vehicle for uh, a natural contract. <clears throat> Moving on to the next section, wager. The mathematician and philosopher Blaise Pascal argued that it was rational to believe in God, since if at the appointed time you were right, you had everything to gain. And if you were wrong, nothing could have been lost. Conversely, if you chose not to believe in God, you had everything to lose. In the absence uh, of clear evidence, it is therefore rational to wager that God exists. And it's to this wager that Sarah is referring here. Pascal's predicament is at once similar uh, and different to the situation we face. His wager concerns the fate of an individual and calls only for a decision. Whereas a response to the climate crisis calls for a process and ongoing collective work. We can discover causes and possible responses in the economy, industry and technology, but they all tend to presuppose uh, to propose rather short term actions that can make things sometimes worse and not better. Instead, we need to think long term. This is a familiar idea, but Sayer adds something more. Due to the global character of the problem, everything is complex, risky, and uncertain. As political and legal philosophers tell us, it is the purpose of contracts to reduce and manage risk and uncertainty. But at present, we either ignore the world around us, or, still bound by traditional conceptions of matter and agency we treat it as an object that can be manipulated and controlled what we lack is a sense of our interconnectedness with the conditions around us and an understanding of how to translate such a sense into choosing and acting one could argue and I say I will that the sciences are now are now beginning to express this interconnectedness. But uh, even if that's true, the expression has not been translated into a way of thinking ethically and politically. Our deliberations rely on forms of reason that belong to another time and that may now have become outdated. For example, uh, ancient Greece but then perhaps most especially early modernity, the early modernity that gave us the social contract. And or, Mon might add, they conform to the principles of the economy, best use of the scant resources, notions of investment and return. Or to industry, when we think of, of productivity and technology which makes us think in terms of performance and convenience. The short-term solutions provided by such disciplines risk, Sayre warns, uh, um, to reproduce the causes of the problem. One reason that Sayre always sought to bring the sciences and the humanities and arts together was to diminish the claim of individual disciplines to the right to dictate terms by widening the repertoire on which our thinking is based. On to the next section, war. Now, the book, The Natural Contract, was published in 1990, months after the Berlin Wall came down and the Soviet bloc began to fragment. Up to that point, The Cold War had seen the West and Soviet Union threaten each other with nuclear arsenals capable of destroying the planet many times over, and the strategy of mutually assured destruction, MAD, was supposed to serve as an effective deterrent since any attack would escalate and both sides would be destroyed. Sayre notes that in this respect, the two sides are in a different scenario to Goya's fighters, where at least it seems that one or the other could strike a decisive blow and win. Our situation with respect to the climate crisis and the degradation of the non-human world appears uh, similar to the nuclear standoff between the West and the Soviet Union, insofar as both sides seek to avoid a shared end. The destruction must be contained, the risk managed, the contract respected. On the other hand, Goya's painting reminds us that both sides in the Cold War nuclear face-off, like the fighters, ignored the earth on which they stood. The world is no longer divided in the same way between East and West, but war and competition are no less pervasive. Nothing has changed. On to the next section, dialogue. Perhaps the most recurrent theme in all of Sayre's work is that of communication. I've mentioned it already. Drawing on information theory, translated through the work of Lucretius and Leibniz, Sayre recognises that all things communicate all of the time, from human beings speaking to each other, to the roof tiles reflecting light, to cells exchanging proteins, the moons held in orbit around distant planets. In different ways all such communication can be understood as the transmission of information using a language that is in each case shared by the interlocutors but not by others. For example, gravity is felt by particles with mass but not by particles such as electrons that have no mass. Cloud patterns may be very significant to a farmer or a mountaineer, but less so to an office worker. All communication, therefore, necessarily both includes and excludes, which means that it takes place against the backdrop of a colossal noise arising from all the exchanges that cannot be decoded, quite apart from those that you or I or any given thing cannot even sense. As I mentioned a moment ago, says understanding of communication is based on information theory and we'll come back to this, especially when we read passages from uh, The Birth of Physics. If you want to follow it up now, uh, I suggest uh, reading says essay on the origin of language, biology, information theory and thermodynamics. Dialogue and debate depend then on a contract, an agreement of some kind to use the same language. But Serre makes a further observation, adding that war itself depends on a contract and is, in his words, a legal state. Mm. What are we to make of this? We're familiar, I think, with the idea that one nation may declare war on another, but is it still relevant? Most conflicts around the world today, from Ukraine to Yemen, to the Democratic Republic of Congo, and most recently, and horrifically, Gaza, have not followed a formal declaration of war. So what does Ser mean? I think he means that such conflicts are nonetheless, to some extent, more ordered than random violence. Again, one might object that to say this diminishes the horror of the violence involved. I think his point is that however extreme the brutality, it is to some extent ordered by interests, priorities and ways of acting whether or not these conform to in international conventions. Looking ahead to the birth of physics, following Lucretius, Sayre writes about how atoms combine from the cosmic flux to constitute a world. Uh, war can be compared to the first emergence of order from the chaotic turbulence where no connections survive and no pattern is repeated. This is why Sayre thinks that Thomas Hobbes was wrong to describe the state of nature as a war of all against all. Prior to the contract, it could not be classed as a war. It was simply chaotic violence. Going back to my comments at the outset, we can see that a contract marks the transition, not from war to peace, but in fact, from violence to war. Sayer now offers the first of several models of dialogue. Um, uh, And in this first one, if, if you can imagine, if I describe it now, there are two axes. One runs from player one to player two, and the other cuts across it and runs from noise to contractual language. In general, I'd say we are aware of the first axis that runs from player one to player two, but not the second that runs from noise to contractual language. Yet, as Seir tells us, the war or dialogue between the players must also in some sense make war on noise, where noise is whatever disrupts their relation. Picture two people having a heated row who are so consumed by the exchange, they ignore everything else. What will disrupt their relation, leaving aside a diplomatic intervention? What will disrupt their relation is the reaction of the physical world against the relation of war, a reaction that their contract with each other disposes them to ignore as noise. And because the vertical axis, the axis, as I presented in the uh, in the notes, the axis that runs from noise to uh, between noise and contractual language, because that axis is unseen, the players are not attending to this. The players do not see the damage their actions inflict on the world. They are at war with each other, but at the same time are unthinkingly violent towards the world. It may be helpful to to try to lay out a few steps here about what's going on, because it's quite, um, it seems quite dense to me. One, in waging war, the players not only ignore the world, they wage uh, a war against the world and specifically against the noise of the world, which includes the consequences of their own violence. But their war against the world is not the outcome of a contract with the world or not explicitly so. It appears to arise from their contract with each other, hence the fact that might be more aptly described as a violence towards the world. Noise is what disrupts the contractual language in which a communication takes place. In this case, the communication is war. But as we'll see in a minute, it could also be economic exchange and competition, for example. What disrupts the contractual language, this holds player one and player two together here, is the worldly world, what he calls the worldly world reacting. The swamp rising up, the flood. This is unseen because the players or fighters do not see the damage their war inflicts on the non-human world or the risks posed by the reaction of the non-human world. The non-human world is at once noise and what we need to start decoding in order to safeguard our own human communication of all kinds. To decode it is to enter into communication and that will require a contract. Hence the extension of the contract. say suggests that maybe we're now beginning to realize what's going on and that a global change is underway he says that on page 10 of the book well perhaps this is optimistic but let's hope not on to the next section war and violence say rehearses the uh, idea of the subjective war between factions or parties and the objective violence this directs towards the world. So a subjective war between factions and the objective violence this directs towards the world. objective violence involves no contract. He then outlines a new model, a second diagram. Rival 1 to Rival 2, there's an axis that runs between Rival 1 and Rival 2. And then an axis that cuts across them, that first one that runs between contracts and law, human regulation, and objects, the worldwide world, the Earth. Objects and uh, the worldwide world, wide world the, uh, the non-human world, remain invisible, reduced to a stage set, that is, something not real, that is there as the background to a drama played out by actors. It doesn't react. The two rivals press with all their might on objects, says Serre. Uh, both sides destroy things, violence. Even if they are aware of this, they don't see the connection to the worldwide world. Yet objective violence is uncontainable, global. It occurs in too many sites, too much, too often, too long. And its consequences are too unpredictable. And so we approach a tipping point where objective violence displaces subjective wars. Ignoring this, subjective wars nonetheless escalate in intensities and Sayer's Sayre's words, multiply their devastation. It's a grim prospect. Is there a way out? Next section, law and history. Returning to the legal status of war as opposed to unregulated violence, Sayre writes that history begins with war, understood as the closure and stabilisation of violent engagement within juridical decisions. More generally, we could say that history begins when it is possible to trace a connection between events, such that it's clear that one state of affairs has led to another. Commonly, we think that events such as the movement of atoms are subject to some overriding laws that govern all such cases however a contract that stabilizes chaotic violence does not necessarily take this form as we'll see when we read the birth of physics a contract can also be a pact between two atoms that stabilizes their relation to one another and the assemblage of such pacts that characterize groups of atoms moving up the scale to things and to even to whole worlds and to the lives lived out in them. Significantly, settled order doesn't spring fully formed from chaos. First, from turbulence, vortices form that hold the flow of atoms in more or less settled patterns. Now, we therefore have parallel to parallel versions of contract and its operation. The first, in the first we have contract set between violence and war. So we have violence, contract, war. The contract takes us from violence to war. In the second, we have chaos or a term that Sayre uses very often furor, And then contract leading to vortices and ordered combinations. So in the one we have the violence contract war, the second chaos contract order. Now, uh, obviously, in describing them in those ways. You can see that we have the human contract and we have uh, another contract. We have a contract that, that is not specifically human. It doesn't exclude the human, but it's not specifically human. Now, it's important not to see one of these versions of contract as fundamental to understanding the other, but rather to see them as two variations. Insofar as the problems we face are due to the human world disregarding the non-human world, then it comes down to a relation that only goes one way. We can do things to the human world, but it um, To the world, sorry, not the human world, we can do things to the world, but it cannot do anything to us. The changes it undergoes as a result of our actions mean nothing to us. But this in turn means that we think of contracts as purely human, social and political, and disregard their role in the emergence and perdurance of order. As we'll see for Sayre, it is important to see that relations are never just one way. And in this instance, we should therefore understand the two forms of contract in relation to one another. The contract we strike to stabilise our social and political relations is somehow implicated with how order occurs and survives in the non-human world. This is another indication uh, of the kind of connections that Sayre aims to elicit. Now, Somewhat paradoxically, in this section of the book, it's Mars, the god of war, that saves us from violence, as we've seen that war is what follows the contract. right? But Seer tells us that he's not alone in doing this, as Jupiter, god of laws and god of the sacred, and Quirinus, who Seer identifies as the god of the uh, productive work also save us from violence, which is to say that random violence can be steadied by religion and by economic order as well. Contracts will take different forms in different cases. Another way to say this is that religion and economic life are themselves ways to reduce risk and uncertainty, what contracts do. They're not the only ones. Contract theory proposes that we understand our current state as a way to uh, escape a state of violence or war. And Sayre thinks that we are now in, in his words, the same position as our unimaginable ancestors. To bring order to our violent relation with the non-human world, we must make a new pact. This amounts to having to, in his words, revise and even resign the contract that according to the political philosophy of Hobbes, Locke and Rousseau took us from violence to war, from a state of nature to a state of society and history. In its revised form, the contract will first of all be struck with the enemy of the human world, the world as such, the worldwide world, which has begun to react against us. Sarah is proposing that the vertical relation between the horizontal, um, beneath, uh, beg your pardon, the, the vertical relation beneath the horizontal in the diagram will now also become a contract. That is to say, the uh, relation to objects, to the worldwide world, the earth. This is a first step, but from what we've seen so far, a contract can only deliver us from violence to war and leave us there. We're left wondering whether that's as far as we can go, or whether there are further steps we can take towards a possible peace. And if so, what such a peace might look like. The key will lie in how the contract that regulates human violence into war can be related to a contract that regulates the violence we all direct towards the world, against the world. And in this in turn will depend on what form we think these contracts take or can take. Next section, competition. Following the suggestion in the previous section, Seir now considers how Quirinus, the god of productive work, can produce contracts. Moving from war to some form of economic relations um, reproduces similar effects to war, both in a good sense and a bad. Chaotic violence is given some order, but there is still conflict and a degradation of the world. At this point, Sayre introduces an idea that features in many of his books, a world object and a world object for him is an object whose scale is global in at least one dimension. Time, 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 speed, space, or energy. Such an object is uncontainable. It cannot be isolated, treated as a closed system and manipulated as if it were a normal object. We've come across the importance of this idea for Sarah already and it features again in the next section. And the next section is entitled, We. The question here really is, who are we? In the past, individuals were scattered sparsely across the earth, barely leaving a mark, and weak and isolated, threatened by nature on all sides. Now, scaled up in number and reach, each individual has connections to multiple others in multiple sites. Humanity has become a multitude too vast and varied to be determined contained. Its scale is visible from space, as satellite images show swathes of light across continents within which there are numberless relations, communications, taking every imaginable imaginable form. In Sayre's words, humanity behaves like a sea. The individual is no longer localised. In a thinly veiled reference to Heidegger's account of our existence as Dasein, Being There, says, writes that Being There extends from Milan to Dublin. Man has become Being Everywhere. Human life is uncontainable. This means that we interact with the world in a new way. Actions are not isolated and operate at a scale that matches the world as such we are no longer the fragile reed that pascal described it is the world at large that has become fragile buffeted and broken by tectonic plates of human life and the mess they leave behind here then next is a, a final version of the of the model that occurs three times the variations on the model that occurs three times in this uh, chapter. Here we have, uh, again, an axis running between rival one and rival two. And the second axis that cuts across that between human life as powerful as the world and global nature or planet Earth. Again, signing a new contract will bring in uh, Sayers' words, at the very least, war, ideally, peace. But, as we asked a few minutes ago, where will such a peace come from? Next section, knowing. When we think of knowledge, uh, the image of the sage seated alone in contemplation by a flickering fire has been replaced by that of a research team coordinated across many sites and over extended periods of time. Science today is a collective practice that takes organisation based on agreements, conventions and contracts. It's an idea that we'll meet again when we look at the work of Bruno Latour later in the module, as he views science as a conglomeration of the purely scientific and the social and political. We might also think here of Thomas Kuhn's idea that science both theoretical and experimental, is based on paradigms that uh, remain largely implicit. However, Sayre places more emphasis here on, on the place of law, the juridical. Speaking of the steps in an imaginary education in science, he counts off the examinations, interviews and judgments of various kinds that the would be scientist must undergo. At every point, one is subjected to law. Here, the law is political or social. It's concerned with rights and the regulation of actions. As Sayer writes, the tribunals of knowledge know causes, which are often conflictual, before knowing things, which are often peaceful. Now, almost Incidentally, this offers a first indication how peace may come about. In many other works, The Five Senses and in Genesis, uh, for example, Sayre writes that human relations without things are volatile and frequently violent. It's the emergence of the thing, the object, that slows down the pace and introduces stability by giving us something to attend to and around which to organise ourselves. If the community of scientists held together by contracts is occupied with things, then there is at least a hope for peace. But as Saad goes on to say, there remains a problem here, or at least a mystery, in that we don't really know how to understand the relation between things and the juridical laws of courts and human affairs, between the operation of laws in nature and their operation in society. This question can take various forms. For example, what is the relation between scientific knowledge and political governance and the laws of a state? Although I think this is an an important question for Sayre, it may not be at the forefront of his mind here. Instead, he may be looking at the mysterious way that scientific knowledge, which in its choice of concepts, working methods, and epistemological structure appears to be entirely conventional, how does all this somehow accurately describe the world of things quite independent from human conventions? He writes, says writes, it is as if the verdicts of humans coincide with those of objects. That never happens except in miracles and sciences. Again, Latour writes about this intermingling of what appears, uh, what depends on us and what does not. But we'll come back to him later in the module. Serre writes that this configuration conceals a contradiction. And I'd add that behind this, perhaps, there lies a further problem. The contradiction is that, in spite of its apparently conventional character, science speaks of necessity. Traditionally, at least, it has identified universal laws that describe how all things in nature move and how they relate to other things. As such, and this is the contradiction, apparently conventional, it has taken the place of religion as an expression of the true nature of the universe. Insofar as this is so, science, Conventional in its constitution speaks of necessity and judges. In its modern incarnation, science aims to achieve mastery over the natural world and takes up a relation of, in Sayre's words, unconscious violence towards the world. Peace seems to have fallen by the wayside. But I want to focus for a moment on a short paragraph at the end of this section. Sayers writes as follows. Science brings together fact and law, whence it's now decisive place. Scientific groups in a position to control or do violence to the worldwide world are preparing to take the helm of the worldly world. Initially, this seems to present a vision of further tyranny as as science seeks to control the earth by imposing its laws. Yet the prospects of science taking the helm, as Say puts it, could mean that science will inform political governance in a new way. To think through this, we need to re- reconsider what is meant by knowledge and science, which is to say that we need to see whether there's reason to leave behind the idea that science masters the world through the imposition of law, as Sayre has described. Now, he also states here that science brings together fact and law. And in this, I think we glimpse a view of an alternative that Sayre will go on to develop, one that may open up a way towards peace. Traditionally, in science, facts are brought under laws that are universal, as I've mentioned already. For example, when a force is applied to a body, it accelerates according to Newton's law of motion. F equals ma. Force equals mass times acceleration. Moreover, facts do not just lie around waiting for a law to describe them. For if we say that It is a fact that a neutron will decay into a proton, an electron and a neutrino. This depends on a body of scientific theory that includes many laws. The problem here is that the law as universal. This way of traditional scientific way of thinking about law, the law as universal stands over and above the phenomena it describes. Science as a body of law is utterly different to the world it masters recall here perhaps its displacement of religion as the expression of natural law as long as science and the operation of law within it are understood in this way it's hard to see how science can stop dominating the world and perpetuating violence towards it a full consideration to the place of law in science would of course take much longer than we have here but sayers offers a way at least to see how the problem might be approached for if science brings together fact and law we can ask if the way the relation between fact and law has been described so far is the only way that relation can be described if that's the only way that fact and law can be brought together. Can science bring fact and law together in a different way, bridging the non-human and the human without appealing to a notion of law that is paradoxically at once conventional and transcendent to both worlds? This is something we'll look at more carefully when we read parts of the birth of physics and the incandescence and possibly sections from one or two other texts by Sayre later in the module. In brief, here, Sayre elaborates a view that laws emerge as regularities in series of events and as such can be modified by variations in the way those events unfold. Intriguingly, it's a consideration that we also meet in the work of the physicist Lee Smolin, a cosmologist who has written of the need for cosmology to abandon the traditional demarcation between phenomena, we might might say facts, and laws. If events follow one another according to patterns that are made and modified along the way, then causality precedes law. And history becomes central to scientific explanation. Science tells stories. Sayer himself proposes that the world is a grand narrative of countless stories traced across complex relations and bifurcations, from the beginning of the universe to the present moment. A history that encompasses both the human and the non-human. And we will again come back to this later in the module. For now, it's enough to see that the relation between law and the world does not have to be one of mastery and the perpetuation and therefore the perpetuation of violence. This is promising. In the same lines I cited earlier, Sayre writes that scientific groups are preparing to take the helm of the worldly world. Could this be a reference to the figure of the helmsman that Sayre later identifies as crucial to bringing together scientific knowledge and political governance? Just 20 20 pages later in the book. Well, many issues and problems remain unresolved. For example, the model at the end of the last section that I've described showed the tectonic plate of humanity dominating the world. And it's far from clear how transitioning to a narrative view of science will change this. Not to say that it can't, but it's not yet clear what that might mean. The final two sections in this chapter give us some encouragement, though, and something more to think about. Next section, Beauty. Sayer writes that beauty arises from the fusion of the non-human and the human world. The model of knowledge based on universal laws that transcend the world they describe leaves us perplexed at how such a miraculous fusion can occur. In this section, Sayer approaches the question in reverse, suggesting that the term pollution can be traced to the breakdown of the harmony between what he calls the worldwide world and the worldly world, the non-human and the human. As the extent of this pollution now threatens to overwhelm both worlds, a new connection between the worlds is emerging, but this time it provokes anxiety rather than joy or optimism. The gap between the rational and the real is growing and it's filled with garbage, not by chance, as the proliferation of waste is a consequence of the negligence that drives the two sides apart. Final section, peace. It's fitting that the chapter ends with the section entitled peace. Sayre notes that nations have only ever instituted a lasting truce because on the strength of an idea, um, uh, sorry, on the strength of an an idea of perpetual peace, so abstract, so removed from the world, that it left them unbound, lawless in effect. This is now being uh, redressed by the contract that whether we like it or not, the world is striking with us as it reacts to excessive pollution and degradation. As Sayer writes, it gives the reason for peace. This doesn't only mean that it gives us a motive to change our relation to the world, nor is it just that the world itself is filling the gap between reason and reality as we understood them before. The sense of the connection, bringing the two sides together will be different, such that the real, may not be what science in the past took it to be, and science itself may be changed. Sayre will challenge us to consider what we understand by reason, proposing, for example, later in the book, a new reflection on Leibniz's principle of sufficient reason. This principle states that everything must have a reason, or a cause. But Sayre notes that in the original, or certainly one version of the principle, it says that reasons must be rendered to all things, which he he takes to mean that reason must be given back to things. Now we'll look more carefully at this idea later on, but the exchange it envisages may amount to a contract of sorts, to everything that is given to me I must give in return So to everything that gives to me. If you like, I must give in return the world of things and the human world of reason and knowledge are brought into relation to conclude. Sarah typically is working here at many levels or on many different tracks. At the same time as proposing that we enter into a new contract with nature, he also engages profoundly with the history of science and rationalism, as well as political philosophy and religion. We can see that beneath the exclusion of nature from the social contract that opens civil society in the democratic state, there is a deeper or at least parallel disjunction between the human world and the non-human world. Extending the notion of contract, as he has already begun to do here, may provide a way to re-establish relations, but it will require rethinking some basic terms in science and political thought. At stake is not only what is required to respond to the climate crisis, but also a sense of how we can make peace with the non-human world, and how such a peace may be defined. Right, That's the end of the notes for this week and I should just say uh, that the uh, notes for this week are um, much longer than will normally be the case. So um, if you're picking this up on a podcast, I've spoken for a, just an hour now, that will not normally be the case. It will normally be somewhat shorter than that. Anyway, that's enough for uh, for now. And I hope you found that interesting.